right, so we started last week in the book of Psalms, um, and uh, I love getting to go through the Psalms. I, I know some of you I've had a conversation with, but uh, I, I love the fact that the Psalms maybe do something slightly different than what we're normally used to. We talked last week about how, how biblical poetry, specifically the Psalms, it speaks to us, but it also kind of speaks for us. It says things that maybe we're not really understanding about ourselves or our relationship with God. And it commu- communicates not just like practical truths about who God is and who we are, but almost emotional truths. Things about how God responds to us and the way that we respond to God. It's the reason why uh, Jesus often quoted the Psalms because of their impact on uh, the, the whole person, not just the intellectual side of us. It's why uh, Paul, the New Testament authors, often cited the Psalms in their writings. And for centuries, the church has been using the Psalms in public corporate settings to to understand and develop this relationship we have with our Creator. And and for many of you, a practice that I've really come to to love is to to put a, a Psalm in the kind of daily devotional time that I have in my life and just uh, letting that psalm kind of wash over me and teach me throughout the day. And what I love about the psalms is that it starts with Psalm chapter 1. And Psalm chapter 1 is a specific beginning because it tells us what will happen if we read and delight and meditate on the psalms, on the law of God. And it tells us that if we delight and meditate on the law of God, that we will be blessed. Right, blessed, and not blessed in the way of like, you and I get a bunch of stuff, but blessed in the way that says God's presence will be available to us. And no matter what circumstance we may find ourselves in, we can go to God and know that he is close to us. We, we talked about how it was a kind of like a verbal sanctuary, a verbal temple for the people of God when they were in exile. So that they're reminded that even though they're in these tough times, they can go back to God's word and remember and believe deep truths about who God is. Right? But it all goes back in chapter 1 to the law of God. And the law of God gets summed up in two commandments. is to love God and to love your neighbor. And we can all agree that sometimes loving our neighbors is, is kind of difficult, right? Like, you, it's kind of easy until, like, election season comes around, right? And it's hard to be loving to those other people who just can't seem to get it, right? Or, or when your, your neighbor, right, keeps making the same dumb mistake over and over again, and you have to keep rescuing from that, it's hard to be loving and not, not mean and rude, right? We, we can come up with a million reasons why it's easy to not be loving, but what God calls us to do is to love others and to love him. And if we do those things and we delight in doing those things, it tells us that we will be blessed, And if you read the psalm, that word comes up over and over and over again, that we will be blessed. And so chapter two of Psalms, the second psalm, also reminds us to be blessed or that we we can be blessed. But it does it in a very different way. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to pause Psalm two and I want you to turn actually forward in your Bible. Uh, (coughs) Sorry. My bad. Uh, turn to Daniel chapter 4. All right, in Daniel chapter 4, let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on there. Is Daniel chapter 4 is Israel has been taken out of Israel, like the, the people of Israel have been taken out of the place of Israel, right? And they're taken into Babylon. And the king there is named Nebuchadnezzar. Sounds a lot like a sneeze, but it's another story. 
And this king decides to take at least four that we know of. I'm sure there were many more. Take four of the young, kind of smart ones and put them into his, like, kingdom, like his rulers to help advise him as to how to deal with all the people within his kingdom. Right? And we know them by, you know, any, anybody? VeggieTales back in the day? Right? Rakshak and Benny, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then also Belshazzar. Just kidding, that's Daniel. No, not Belshazzar. One of those. Close to that. Another sneeze word. It's fine. All right, so, so Daniel. And so what's already happened in the first four chapters of the book of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar has already been shown twice by the people of, of Israel that if you follow Yahweh and do what Yahweh says, you'll be blessed. And so what happens right before chapter 4 is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into a fiery furnace that should burn them up in an instant, and yet they walk through the, the furnace without any problem. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he actually sees a fourth, and it says that he looks like a son of the gods. And so this happens, he pulls them out, and he says this in, in 4 verse well, 1 through 3, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his works. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Like, that sounds like right out of the Bible. Like, that sounds like what a, a good Jewish person would write about God. But think about this. This is the king of Babylon. Babylon had 300 gods in their creation account. And this god, this king, went and conquered Israel, brought them out of, of Israel into his kingdom, and now he is professing the most high God. He is placing Yahweh above every other god in his kingdom. Right? That, that's kind of nuts, if you really think about it, that a foreign king would do this. And before you get too excited about Nebuchadnezzar, right, let's, let's move down a little bit. Let's move down a little bit to, to verse 28. It says this. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So just about a year from when this event happens, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, he looks out among his kingdom and he says, is this, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Well, that sounds very different than what he was saying a year ago, isn't it? And it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. 
Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Whoa. So next time you start thinking about all the work that you've done and the things that you've built, just, just remember here, right? The picture that in my brain of what Nebuchadnezzar looks like here, are you ready for this? Oh, you guys know Stephen Tyler, right, from, from Aerosmith? Like, that's the picture I get, right? Weird hair, feathers, you know, yeah, long, uh, anyways. Nebuchadnezzar was a foreign king that got humbled in a moment, and yet still God was working and moving in this king. There's a couple of things we have to understand about this. First, don't ever think that what you have done has been accomplished solely by yourself. Never step into the moment where you can say, look at the work that I have done and the things that I have built. Because God is always involved in what happens. He's always a part of the conversation. And your productivity is only a piece of the larger puzzle. But the second part is this is that God is moving and working in more than just, quote-unquote, his people. That, that God is doing things outside of the church, outside of his people, in the lives of kings and rulers across the vast history of our world. And sometimes we get caught up in this idea that since we have the Bible, God only worked in the amount of things we have written in the Bible. We don't have this concept where maybe there's a Chinese king, an emperor that's moving, and God may have been doing things in the life of that emperor as well. Now, I don't know exactly what they are, but I can read in the Bible that there were many things that God did outside the kingdom of Israel. And so God is working and moving in the kingdoms of this world, even though they don't look and act like the way we want them to look and act like. And so why do I start with this story? Because Psalm 2 is a difficult psalm. It's an important psalm, and I think we need to study it and learn it, but it's a difficult psalm. Right? We talked about how, how the psalms kind of became this literary uh, sanctuary for the people. That they were taken out of Israel into Babylon and Persia and Assyria and Greece and Rome, all to the ends of their known world. And while they were there and living there, they had to live under the rule of foreign kings. So how do you function as a person who is living in exile when a foreign king is obviously working at odds with God? You go back to Psalm 2, and you remember what the promise that God gave us. And that's what the promise of Psalm 2 is for us. So Psalm 1 is the encouragement for us to live within the law of God and to be, you know, find blessing in doing that. But Psalm 2 is to trust that the promise of God will come through whether or not the king is doing what he's supposed to do or working at odds with God himself. So we're going to open up to Psalm 2, and we're going to work through it today. But, but I want to I remind you, this is poetry. And poetry is meant not to be read and understood and walked away from. But poetry is meant to be read and reread and reread and reread and reread. Right, poetry is meant for you to memorize and study and look at, and it begins to kind of move and work in your life as you begin to see it. So you may read this one time, and you may think, all right, 
You may read it a second time and you start getting more. You start reading the third and fourth and fifth and it starts making roots in your brain and in your heart and you begin to see the world in different ways. That's what poetry can do. See, we often look at sermons and exegetical lessons as like bonfires where we throw a bunch of wood on it, we let it burn as long as we can burn. But what Psalms do is more like charcoal where they get hot and they just stay and simmer for a long, long time with us. So I want to encourage you, we're going to study this today and we're going to work through it, but you, you should go and read this four, five, six, seven, eight, a hundred times this week. And as you do so, you will begin to gather and learn and it will wash over you in ways that you're not prepared for. I promise. All right. And if it doesn't work, come back and tell me and I'll show you how you're doing it wrong. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. So Psalm 2. Are we ready? I won't make you guys stand this week, but maybe you can figuratively stand. Just kidding. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's some things about this psalm that we have to kind of get out of the way before we start. The, the heading of this psalm doesn't give us much information, right? Many of the other psalms will say a psalm of David or to the tune of this or, or whatever it may be. This psalm just has what someone else had written in there as a heading. But we can look forward later in the Bible that, that psalm, uh, psalm 2 is attributed by Peter and Paul to David, now, I don't know if they attributed to David as if in their minds, kind of the idea is they attributed all Psalms to David. Instead of saying written in the Psalms, they say as written by David. Kind of, does that kind of make sense? Right? Or they, they believed and it was commonly thought that David wrote the Psalm. It doesn't matter either way. The, the, the concept behind this is that someone in the kingdom of David was, in, was part of the creation of this Psalm. And that's why, that, that, that's an important part of this. Secondly, traditionally, Psalm 1 and 2 were always together. Whether they were the two different songs or the same psalm put together, they were always read in conjunction with each other. Now, you can tell because in poetry, there's structure. And what's the first line of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man. What's the first or the last line in Psalm 2? Blessed are all. You see, there's a connection in what's going on here. And so you start with the promise of what, if you follow God, you will be blessed. But then the second one is the promise of what God will do in the world and how you'll be blessed through it. And the reason this is important is because we can live in exile. Like you and I can live in exile. The nation of Israel can live in exile. The, the church and the kingdom of God on earth can live in exile 
and still be blessed. I think sometimes we forget this. That we can experience the blessings of God in our lives when things around us are chaotic. When people and governments and rulers and authorities are doing things that work at odds against what God is doing. Like making medians on Highway 3. Or not really, but... You can look at the world around us and you can see people and rulers and authorities who are working at odds with what God desires. And we can get mad and angry and depressed and just say, God, please come now, which is okay. But until he comes, we can still live a blessed life. And I think sometimes we forget that. That we can be blessed even in the midst of exile. But what does it mean to be lived in exile? Here's my quick definition. The primary authority in our world is not God and his word. That's what living in exile is, is when the primary authority in our world is not God or his word, but literally anything else. It means that best case scenario, human rule and authority is tainted with brokenness and oppression and sin in its best case scenario. It means that the best case scenario for the nation of Israel back in the day was still not what God had desired to complete. It means uh, whatever country you are from or you exist in, the best case scenario of that government is still exile for the follower of Jesus because one day God will come and he will make things right. And when God comes and makes things right, he's not dealing with the authorities and the practical things that they're doing in our world. He's dealing with the sin and the oppression that exists in every single one of us. So the best case scenario in our world is still not dealing with the root problem, and that is sin has impacted every leader and every person that has ever existed. So why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. When I turn on the TV, when I read the news, when I look at some of the headlines that are going on in our world, like, why are people actively going against God and his desires? And as Israel is submitting to a foreign ruler, they felt the same way. And so Psalm 2 asked the question for them, God, why? Why are you allowing this? See, we get a response, which is great about this psalm. You notice here it says that they are they're against the Lord, right? It says against the Lord and his anointed. See, sometimes we forget that they're not against us. They're against God. And since we align with God, they're kind of against us, but ultimately they're against God. And so why do the nations rage? Because they're going against God. Then it says this, it says against his anointed. Now this word is the Hebrew word that we just translate to Messiah. So so the writer of this psalm, whether it's David or, or someone within his kingdom, recognizes that the Messiah is the one who will come and fix the brokenness of our world. And that there are nations and rulers and authorities who are at odds with God and his Messiah. But then it says this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
Now, that's a funny picture, is it not? Right, like God is up in heaven looking at all the craziness going on in our world, and he laughs. But not like, ha-ha, it's funny. Kind of like when you tell your kids to do something, and they do the opposite, and it comes back to bite them, and you kind of laugh at them. Remember I told you what would happen if you did this. So God is up there, and he's laughing. It says that he holds them in derision. He mocks. I can't believe, again, you're doing this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Holy hill. If you ever wonder if God is paying attention, remember this psalm. That, that the craziness that exists in our world, God sees. And he's doing something about it. Maybe it's not on our timing, and maybe it's not the way that we would do it. But he's doing something. God's just up there watching. I mean, God's amused by the lengths to which we will go, to, go through to work outside of his authority. Right? Kids are never as creative as they are when they're trying to break rules. Right? I mean, you guys know this. Um, I don't think it's just kids either, by the way. Um, but, you know, we, we are very creative when it's about breaking the rules, right? And I'm sure God looks up there and he's like, for real? Like, you could use that creativity for much better things, but we don't. And his response is that in wrath, he speaks to them and says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The word Zion first appears back in 1 Samuel 5, 7. King David, right, has become the king, and he's taking the city that is called Zion. It's a stronghold. And that becomes what's known as the city of David, which is, in turn, becomes Jerusalem. So you have David as the king in Jerusalem, and God is setting, I am setting up my kingdom there. You see, the idea of a hill is where Jerusalem sat on. But they always went up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction they were coming from. So they went up to Jerusalem, and God is setting his Messiah. He is setting his king on his holy hill. And maybe at this point, you could look back and think, oh, well, David was, was that king. But remember, there's no kingdom anymore. They've been conquered by Babylon. If you're living in exile, you have a foreign king ruling over you, and God's saying, I have set my king on the holy hill. You're like, God, I don't see him. So it has to be something different. So he continues, I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Does that sound familiar? Ask of me and I will make the nations, your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I think of the picture that God and the psalmist are presenting here. God is looking down at the destruction caused by human beings, rulers, and authorities owning this world in a way that works at odds with who God is. And he sees it, and he might be a little amused by it, but then he becomes angered by their arrogance. And his response is wrath. His response is fury. And he desires a new kingdom with a new king. And just as David's son Solomon ascended the throne after him, God's son was going to be the one who ascended the throne for him. 
And not only will God make the kingdom the nation of Israel, but God will take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. I mean, think about this picture. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2 when the nations are gathered together, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches the message that gathers the world. This is why Jesus tells us to go to the ends of the earth. Go Fast forward to Revelation 21. So the nations are before the lion and the lamb. You see, God cares more about the nations than we give him credit for. But he understands that the brokenness that exists is not just a problem for the Israelites. It's a problem for humanity. So God will send his son to earth to bring in a new kingdom and destroy the old systems of human authority and oppression. Let me say that again. God will dismantle human and spiritual authorities with a new kingdom. See, this is the language that is written all over the New Testament. That when Jesus shows up on the picture, he says, I am bringing in a new kingdom. Right? The kingdom of God is at hand. And he brings in this new kingdom, and he sets up a new king, but instead of setting him on a throne, he sets him on a cross. Where does he do it? In Zion, in Jerusalem, on a hill. Paul picks up on this when he says in Colossians 2, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and are uncircumcision of your flesh. When you recognize the sin that exists and your failure to follow God, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, most of the time we stop there, right? Because that feels good for me. But listen to the next. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. That sounds a lot like Psalm 2. So what Paul is doing is he's connecting these two ideas, that God desires to remove human authority in our world that works at odds against him and place his king, Jesus, on the throne. I mean, a thousand years before Jesus even is born, this psalmist communicates this message that the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One, who is coming as God's response to evil and oppression caused by the kings and rulers was at hand. And so why do we continue going against God? This is the last section here. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O, o rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, or his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, we serve a God who is doing things in our world that we're not really aware of. He, he has done things in our world that he doesn't have to tell us about. And as we look at the brokenness that exists because of the rulers and authorities of our world, we can still go to the scriptures and be blessed by the fact that God has done a work through Jesus to begin dismantling these systems of oppression. The gospel says that this world is not all we have. But God desires to redeem it and remove the sin. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? The, the king that saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the king that worshiped Yahweh because of it, what happens when he sets himself above the others? 
cast into the wilderness. Kingdom is taken from him. But what does it say about those who take refuge? It says those who take refuge will be blessed. Maybe, maybe you're not a king. But if you're honest with yourself, when you look around at your world, you maybe have a little bit of a kingdom. And you can choose to allow God to be the authority in your little kingdom and be authority over your parenting and your marriage and your finances and your time. Or you can build up your kingdom and you can say, look at the work that I've done. You'll be humbled by God. He will speak to you in his wrath. Or you can find refuge in the God of the universe. You can rejoice with fear. Fear as you understand who God is. You can rejoice with trembling. When you come into the presence of the almighty God who can dismantle rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, you and I should be a little nervous. But thankfully, we know the king. We can look around at the world. We can look at the leaders and authorities that are in place, and we can get the idea that God's forgotten us. Psalm 2 reminds us that there is a God who is working and moving in everyone. So we don't have to be afraid of what this world has. We can look through this world to a future where God will redeem and restore all things to the way they should be. And we can start by being blessed and finding grace and mercy in the work of Jesus. You can go back to Genesis 1. You can go to Revelation 20, 21. And you can see that God's desire is an authority given by him and submission from his people. Psalm 2 reminds us that when we are not in control, there is a God who is. And we can be blessed there. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we sometimes get overwhelmed by all the things in this world that seem to be working at odds with you. And sometimes we take them as personal attacks on us, and sometimes we get frustrated that you're not moving fast enough. But God, I pray that this psalm would continue the slow burn in our hearts to remind us that you are a God who cares. And that as we find refuge from our world and from sin and oppression and human authority in you, that you remind us of the lengths to which you went through so that we could come close. That you sent your son to step out of heaven, to live on earth the perfect life we could not live, to put the wrath of our sin upon him so that he would die in our place, that you raised him to life so that one day he will return and put all things back to the way that they need to be. And we can find blessing in that. So God, I pray that this psalm is not just something that we learn but something that changes the posture of our hearts as we live as people in exile. And we just pray these things in your name.